You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. In our series on John Brown, we talked about how the average 19th century American would be considered exceptionally religious by modern standards. And Brown was religious by 19th century standards. Well, we could say something similar about the subject of our new series. If you took just about any American man, or woman actually, if you took just about any American, but especially someone living on the frontier, uh, out of the 19th century, and dropped him in the, uh, the current U.S., he'd probably be someone considered hard by today's standards. You know, like tough or gritty, not squeamish. Nathan Bedford Forrest wasn't, uh, wasn't just a hard-ass by ordinary 19th century standards. Uh, he was considered hard among other people living on the frontier. Now, to demonstrate this point, I'm going to share an anecdote from Forrest's early teenage years. The Forrest family, William and Miriam, and eventually their 12 children, were living on the Tennessee frontier. And one evening, Miriam and one of her daughters were on a long ride home after uh, visiting the home of another uh, Bedford County, Tennessee family. Along the way, they were stalked by a puma, you know, a mountain lion. And as the sun went down, the big cat attacked. Fortunately, um, Miriam managed to stay on her horse and she and her daughter narrowly escaped uh, by jumping the horse um, over and through a creek. And the puma didn't follow. Now, they managed to make it the rest of the way home safely, but Miriam and her horse were both visibly injured. Uh, upon viewing the injuries and um, seeing how understandably shook up his mother and sister were, uh, young Bedford was determined to act. And so he went out into the dark, into the woods, with only his rifle and a couple of uh, his prized hunting dogs. That sounds like something from uh, where the red fern grows. It didn't take, um, didn't take the dogs too long to get the puma scent. And they and Bedford were tracking the predator that had itself tracked Merriam Forest only a few hours before. Upon hearing the dogs, the puma climbed up into a tree with, uh, of course, the hunting dogs banging at the trunk. At this point, young Bedford realized that he, he might have acted uh, somewhat rashly. Uh, he didn't want to shoot into the dark because he, he couldn't get a clear shot, and the, and the sound of a gun um, would probably prompt the, uh, the cornered animal to attack. And make no mistake, a mountain lion is a dangerous animal, and Forrest uh, was in the woods alone, well, other than, other than with his dogs, uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, he later described it as one of the, the scariest moments in his life. And this is a guy who, who saw some, some precarious situations, as we'll see. Nonetheless, he uh, waited alone in the dark woods all through the night. And when morning came, he got a clear shot and he killed the cougar. Now, if you're an animal lover, as I am, it's kind of sad that the, the big cat had to die. But Forrest, uh, he didn't shoot it because... 
you know, he just wanted to kill a mountain lion. The, the beast had attacked his mother and sister, and that couldn't go unanswered, even from a wild animal. On, on the frontier, it, it posed a, a, very, uh, a very real threat to his family, and it had to be dealt with. And so young Bedford took it upon himself to, to charge into the woods at night and face the threat. He came from a background that uh, that creates hard men uh, who, who don't mind getting their hands dirty. Even after Forrest had become one of the wealthiest men in the entire South and, and the country, really, uh, he wasn't shy about picking up a broom and doing serious cleaning if the condition of his office or his home was, wasn't sufficiently orderly. And Forrest, uh, he was something of a neat freak, uh, maybe uh, a reaction to his his poor hard scrabble upbringing uh not not ocd level but uh he he insisted on order and tidiness in his surroundings and and the desire for neatness translated into his personal appearance also uh one of the the first things he did when he um started getting ahead in his business pursuits was was improve his wardrobe clean pressed suits and well-shined uh, boots were the order of the day now, Forrest didn't have any formal military training, but once in command, he showed a natural talent for strategic thinking. Encyclopedia Britannica uses the phrase, born military genius. It wasn't from studying the tactics of the Napoleonic Wars or staying abreast of the latest thinking in, in European military philosophy, uh, though he was an avid reader. No, it was more of a, a knack for practical thinking, uh, applying lessons learned in areas that he knew well uh, to his military endeavors. Forrest loved to play poker, for example, and he was good at it. So he knew that, that bluffing can work, but only if you do it convincingly and in the right situation. His simple maxim, get there first with the most men, or you might have heard it as, uh, get their firstest with the mostest, though that's probably not what he actually said, that maxim became one of the most enduring statements from the war. Historian Alan Axelrod provides a, uh, a great summary of Forrest as a commander. Quote, He was not a knight or a crusader, but a man of war. And war, he said, means fighting, and fighting means killing. Like the devil, Forrest knew how to sow chaos and destruction with consummate craft, and his method relied as heavily on intimidation, bluff, and deception as it did on saber's edge and gunpowder. All that kept him from joining the ranks of the very greatest generals of the Civil War was his subordinate position, which confined him to the wholly tactical role, albeit one that sometimes had a strategic impact. End quote. Uh, his effectiveness as a cavalry commander earned him the nickname the Wizard of the Saddle, and he was the only rebel officer whose, whose individual presence uh, would cause William Tecumseh Sherman anxiety. Uh, Sherman dispatched more than one significant force with the single-minded objective of killing or capturing Forrest. After the war, though, Sherman described Forrest as, quote, the most remarkable man our Civil War produced on either side. Sherman, who was uh, a pretty good judge uh, of these types of things, concluded that Forrest had a, quote, genius for strategy, which was original and to me incomprehensible, end quote. Throughout the war, Forrest never got far from the fighting. 
He had an absurd 29 horses killed from underneath him, all told. And he killed at least 30 Union men in close-quarter fighting, including killing a uh, Dothraki blood rider in single combat. No, I made up that last part. Uh, Some of those kills Forrest dispatched with a shotgun, the majority with a pistol or saber, which, incidentally, Forrest uh, made a practice of sharpening on both sides, contrary to the common practice. Needless to say, this close-quarter fighting was decidedly not the experience of most Civil War generals, though cavalry officers did tend to mix it up a little bit more. Forrest was hard on his men, and he wasn't above striking a junior officer who he thought was showing an insufficient work ethic. But he also took care of the soldiers under his command, often equipping them and arming them out of pocket and making sure a superior effort earned due credit. And he also didn't hesitate to criticize and second-guess his superiors. Now, Forrest's legacy has been somewhat ambiguous. He was predictably lionized in the South and became a central figure in the Lost Cause narrative. In the North, during and after the war, Forrest was viewed as a a chief Confederate villain. Maybe the worst. And that's because of the dark part of Forrest's record. You see, most of that fortune that Forrest earned came from dealing in slaves. He didn't just uh, own a plantation with slaves. He was a slave trader. And it was Forrest who was in command for what came to be known as the Fort Pillow Massacre, the, quote, Confederate slaughter of African-American federal troops stationed at Fort Pillow, Tennessee, on April 12, 1864, that stemmed from Southern outrage at the North's use of black soldiers, end quote. And that, again, was a, a quote from Encyclopedia Britannica. And perhaps most infamously, Forrest was the, the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, with Fort Pillow and the Klan, an argument can at least uh, be made that Forrest uh, has been viewed somewhat unfairly by, by history. The former, because uh, there's a good chance he wasn't personally present and aware that Soldiers who had already surrendered uh, were being killed uh, until it was too late to do anything about it. And and the latter, because Forrest disassociated himself uh, from the Klan after violence became a regular part of its playbook. Now, we'll look at both issues uh, in more detail later in this series. For now, we'll just say that that you can make a defense for Forrest, but it's, it's not nearly conclusive. But in terms of purely uh, military history... Southern and Northern historians pretty much universally recognized that Forrest was a rare talent. Shelby Foote declared Forrest one of the two geniuses revealed by the Civil War, the other being Abraham Lincoln. Uh, If you're trying to argue that that anyone else was the war's best cavalry officer, you'll have to start by explaining why, why he was better than Forrest. When asked after the war to identify the, the Civil War's best soldier, Robert E. Lee declared, quote, A man I have never seen, sir. His name is Forrest. Now, you can draw a straight line between Forrest's uh, hard, difficult upbringing and his later success uh, in the Civil War. Life on the frontier imbued him with a, a practical, straightforward way of looking at things that lent itself well to military endeavors. Conflict and combat weren't something to be feared, but they were also weren't anything to romanticize, just a part of life that some people happened to be good at, and Forrest happened to be one of them. 
Uh, there weren't any romantic notions of the grandeur of battle to cloud his judgment. He saw it for what it was, and that gave him uh, the clarity to be supremely effective. Vice Count Garnett Wolseley, a British field marshal who visited the U.S. Uh, as an observer during the Civil War earlier in his career, um, left this description of Forrest's unsophisticated but undeniably successful approach to war. Quote, Forrest, the backwoodsman, the farmer, and the slave dealer, knew nothing of grand strategy, but he was at once a shrewd, able man of business, and at the same time thoroughly acquainted with the common-sense tactics of the hunter and the western pioneer. The art of war was an instinct in him. Hence it was, his track was usually marked with blood, and the dead bodies of his enemies were the records he left of fierce charges down roads, and of federal camps or bivouacs taken by surprise. His favorite maxim was, war means fighting, and fighting means killing. Hello, and thanks for listening to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part one of our look at Confederate cavalryman Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Wizard of the Saddle, and also allegedly, but almost certainly, the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. The first time I remember hearing Forrest's name was uh, as a kid watching the movie Forrest Gump. Hopefully we'll provide a more comprehensive introduction to any listeners who are not yet familiar with him. Part one is going to be uh, on the shorter side compared to some other episodes, and the reason for that is that I had originally intended part one and part two to be one long episode, but it got to be too long and had to be split up. The good news, though, is that all the research and notes for part two are more or less completed. It just needs to be recorded and edited, so the turnaround should be fairly short. Hopefully that will help uh, somebody out there better deal with the house arrest most of us are are presently experiencing. Uh, That'll do it for the introduction. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks as always for listening. I hope you enjoy part one of our look at Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest was born July 13, 1821, in Bedford County, Tennessee, along with twin sister Fanny, the first of 11 children born to William Forrest, a blacksmith and hardscrabble farmer, and Miriam, a tough but attentive frontier woman. He was of English and Scots-Irish lineage. Uh, the Forrests in America started in Virginia moved to North Carolina before ending up in Tennessee uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. So the American frontier was what shaped Bedford Forest. While living in a log cabin on the frontier, the Forest family ate what they could grow or shoot themselves. So young Bedford learned to hunt on foot and on horseback and to shoot rifles, pistols, and shotguns at, at a very young age. Uh, he learned how to how to navigate through the thick Tennessee woods and make the most of the sustenance that the wilderness had to offer. As a boy, he had a naturally daring and adventurous personality, and his surroundings developed even more of that side. As a young man, he became a racehorse and hunting dog enthusiast, and he loved to gamble, especially cards. 
That vice, though, was balanced by temperance when it came to alcohol. Forrest didn't drink. As a child, Bedford Forrest had a grand total of uh, right about six months of formal education. In his adult years, especially after he had um, established himself in business, the lack of education was something of a sore spot or a, uh, a source of embarrassment. Uh, he did learn to read, however, and became an avid reader as he matured, though he, he never developed the polished grammar of a gentleman. His writing involves a lot of uh, creative spelling. Basically, uh, he wasn't educated, but he wasn't ignorant either. He remembered what he read and had a noteworthy uh, level of practical intelligence. The family moved from Tennessee to northern Mississippi in 1834, uh, when Forrest was 13, and his father William died just a couple years later. This left Bedford as the uh, man of the house at age 16. He assumed responsibility for the household's uh, small uh, sustenance uh, farming operation and also had to help raise his brothers and sisters. Five of the siblings, including twin sister Fanny, died of typhoid during the hard times. When the family's property needed to be defended against encroachers, which was not an uncommon occurrence on the frontier, uh, that was now Bedford's job too. Even as a, a teenager, though, Forrest, he had an advantage. He was tall, about six foot three, and along with his height, he had a, a commanding bearing. Most of the time, he was pretty laid back and easy to get along with. Uh, but he was also quick to take offense, especially when he believed that his or his family's honor had been questioned. And when, when that happened, a white-hot temper took over, and... Uh, Bedford didn't have any qualms about getting physical to resolve a dispute. Uh, it didn't take too many confrontations, though, before uh, Forrest's reputation for a fiery temper and a talent for fighting uh, became sufficient to avoid any actual bloodshed in most situations. In 1841, Bedford, now 19 years old, joined up with a company of volunteers looking to get in on the action brewing in Mexico. Upon their arrival in New Orleans, though, they found that uh, there were insufficient ships available to transport all the, the would-be soldiers. So the company had to split up, uh, with a few, including Bedford, deciding to make a trip by land. He made it as far as Houston, Texas, at which point he ran out of money, and there wasn't any, uh, any demand for more volunteers to fight in Mexico anyway. So to finance the the return trip home, he worked for a few months on a Texas plantation. It made an impression. Plantation life was good. Well, good if you were uh, in the ownership class anyway. Uh, much better than the uh, subsistence farming that Bedford was familiar with. The following year, 1842, was a very significant one for the now 20-year-old. With his mother remarried, he was, for the first time, uh, in a position to, to do his own thing. And an opportunity soon presented itself in the form of a partnership offer from his uncle Jonathan. Bedford uh, joined Jonathan in Hernando, Mississippi, just south of Memphis, and launched his career as a businessman. It took a lot of effort, but uh, eventually the, uh, the partnership became successful. Now, Hernando was a tough town, 
Within the space of a few months in 1845, Forrest was involved in a, a shootout right in the middle of town. A local planter had decided that, that Jonathan, Forrest's uncle and uh, business partner, had done him wrong, and he and a few of his men set out to take revenge, which they succeeded in doing. Jonathan was killed in the bedlam. For his part, Bedford, who was uh, with Jonathan at the time of the uh, altercation, uh, dispatched two of the attackers with his pistol and was able to, to chase the others off with a bowie knife, which was conveniently tossed to him by a uh, non-participant. Interestingly, one of the men Forrest ran off with the, the Bowie knife would later fight under Forrest's command in the Civil War. So, just like that, 23-year-old Bedford is now operating as, as a sole proprietor instead of a partnership. Not long after, an associate of Bedford's was murdered right in front of him, and he was only able to, to save his own life by backing the murderers down with a revolver. In this case, a murder trial soon followed, uh, which Forrest was, uh, was obviously uh, an important witness. Now, in 21st century America, uh, being involved in multiple incidents of gunplay probably wouldn't look all that great on your resume, unless you were aiming for a career in the uh, music industry, maybe. Um, that would probably be something that someone with political aspirations especially might want to keep hushed up. But in Hernando, Mississippi in the 1840s, that wasn't the case. A, a man who knew how to handle himself in rough situations was viewed as, as worthy of respect, even an asset to the community. So when word got out uh, of how well Forrest had, had acquitted himself while on the, uh, the scene for violence, the townsfolk elected him as their new constable. And soon after, he was appointed as an officer in the local militia, and even as the county coroner. It makes sense when you think about it. The constable needs to be able to keep the peace. So why not go with a guy who wouldn't be phased by a, a shootout or two right in the center of town? Now, all of these positions were a big deal. A, a first step in Nathan Bedford Forrest's climbing the socioeconomic ladder in the South and becoming one of its leading citizens. And as he began ascending in Southern society, Forrest also began branching out in his business pursuits, along with horse trading, which is what he and um, Uncle Jonathan had focused on. He got involved in cattle and real estate and purchased a brickyard. And of course, Bedford Forrest started dealing in what would prove to be the most lucrative of his ventures, buying and selling slaves. Now, we'll look at that aspect of his business a little bit more in just a moment, but first we need to, to get up to speed on, on how Bedford's family situation progressed, uh, along with his socioeconomic position. After a remarkably brief courtship, Forrest married Southern Belle uh, Mary Ann Montgomery when he was 24 and she was 19. She caught his eye when, when he stopped to help in getting a carriage in which she was a passenger out of some, some sticky mud. After a brief chat, she agreed to a follow-up social visit, and at the second meeting, Forrest announced that he had decided that he wanted to marry her. Kind of abrupt, but, you know, when, when the right girl comes along. She was apparently love-struck, too, because 
After a day or two, she accepted his offer uh, the next time that they saw one another. Her uncle, who was her guardian, initially objected to the marriage on the grounds that Forrest was, was too rough around the edges and Marianne was a good Christian girl. The uncle eventually came around, though. It turns out he was a uh, reformed rowdy himself and could relate to Bedford's hard-scrabble frontier background. They got hitched in 1845, and their first child, William, was born in 1846. And that same year, the young family moved to Memphis. Memphis was a bustling frontier town that offered a wealth of opportunities for an up-and-comer like Forrest. As a new father and husband, earning a comfortable livelihood had become even more important. He needed to make sure that neither Mary Ann nor their children would ever have to endure the sustenance-farming pioneer lifestyle that Bedford had uh, experienced in his youth. In Memphis, Forrest focused his business efforts on real estate and on trading slaves, working with several different partners during his time in the city. Now, in the 1850s, Memphis had one of the largest slave markets in the country, and Forrest soon began amassing considerable wealth. In reading about Forrest's slave-dealing business, what really stood out to me was just how transactional and, and dispassionate it all was. Advertisements emphasized things like the, um, the variety offered by the firm and the reliability of their inventory. One declared, for instance, that they had constantly on hand the best assortment of field hands, house servants, and mechanics. And they assured potential customers that the slaves up for sale were kept clean and comfortable. And potential sellers, quote, may rest assured that a good home will be secured. Now, Forrest actually did have uh, something of a reputation for, as biographer Brian Steele Wills described it, quote, showing humanity, cleanliness, and care, unquote, with the slaves he bought and sold. But as Mills also notes, this was rooted more in commercial pragmatism than in anything like compassion. Slaves who had been whipped and who had the scars to prove it sold for lower prices. And in the upper echelons of Southern society uh, to which Forrest was striving, Physically abusing slaves was considered vulgar and low class. Though lucrative, slave dealing was viewed by the aristocrats with suspicion. Uh, a shady business, unbecoming of a gentleman. Forrest would uh, at least make an effort to be viewed as one of the more socially responsible representatives of the low trade. Of course, an abolitionist or someone with modern sensibilities, might say that it, it doesn't matter how nice you are to your slaves, how well you treat them. Owning another person and compelling them to labor is immoral. Uh, among slavery apologists of the time, the primary retort uh, to that was that slavery is sanctioned by the Bible, so it's morally defensible. Uh, of course, uh, Christian abolitionists, and the movement was a religious one, uh, could also quote Bible verses in support of their position. More creatively, though, the economically-minded defenders of the peculiar institution argued that the laissez-faire capitalist system that prevailed in the North was inherently exploitative in its own right, but that capitalists had no incentive to keep their laborers alive and healthy. 
Basically, you guys just pay your laborers as little as you can get away with, overwork them under hazardous conditions, and if one of the workers dies or complains too much, just hire someone else. And more cheap labor was getting off the boat every day. Now, that economic critique isn't, uh, isn't particularly relevant to uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. He wasn't one to, to dwell on theory or philosophy or even uh, big-picture public policy. But it is kind of interesting uh, that one of the defenses of slavery kind of sort of sounds like something you might come across in the works of Karl Marx, though the, um, the Southern argument wasn't so much a, a defense as an ad hominem uh, retort directed at Northerners. And as a brief footnote, Forrest uh, did at one point after the war advocate for importation of cheap railroad laborers from China. Regardless, by 1852, Forrest's Memphis-based firm had a presence throughout the Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and Southern Kentucky area, and a standing inventory of as many as 300 slaves. And by 1856, they were clearing well over $100,000 per year in profits, which works out to about $4 million in 2020 money. Uh, that's net, too, so quite a tidy sum. Uh, as Field Marshal uh, Walsley noted in the quote from the opening, Forrest had a head for business. He didn't waste money on extravagances, though he did like to buy nice clothes for himself and, and for Marianne, and he financed his younger brother's college educations. Nice gesture, right? Uh, there was no way that college was going to be in the cards for Bedford when he was coming up, but he used his wealth to provide the opportunity to the little brothers that he had looked um, looked out for after their father died. Most of the money his business ventures uh, produced, though, he applied toward investments, prominently including land in several states uh, highlighted by two profitable Mississippi plantations. Before too long, he had become one of Memphis's richest and most prominent citizens. This prominence, uh, along with his not-to-be-trifled-with reputation, earned Forrest an appointment to a committee formed to clean up the corruption and crime that had become rampant in the town. Uh, one of Forrest's duties was to, to personally warn a few well-known criminals uh, on behalf of the committee that if they, if they stayed in Memphis, a lynching was likely to be in their future. Uh, the people of Memphis were, were fed up with the high crime rates and the, the inability or, or unwillingness of the city government to, um, to address it. Um, and they were prepared to take matters into their own hands. And Forrest was also elected as an alderman, where he was uh, offered the opportunity to get in on the, the lucrative kickbacks uh, that were further enriching the politicians. Now, corruption in politics is, is obviously not a new phenomenon. So while he's on the committee responsible for, for straightening out corruption, uh, fellow aldermen try to cut him in on the action. Forrest, to his credit, wasn't interested. Returning to Brian Steele Wills, uh, who I'm relying on for a lot of these anecdotes from Forrest's uh, early life, Wills provides a quotation uh, of how Forrest responded to, to one such offer 
um, which was pretty classic. And the situation is basically that another city official is suggesting how they can collect some graft by assisting one Memphis business in gaining an advantage over another. And Forrest says in response, quote, You infernal scoundrel, do you dare to ask me to be as damned a rascal as yourself? And on a side note, that's, uh, that's what I say to my dog now when he tries to convince me to join him in playing with the tennis ball. Just that part, though, not the rest. Okay, here's the rest. I have a big notion to pitch you into the Mississippi River. I warn you, if you ever presume to address such a damnable proposition to me in the future, I will break your rascally neck. End quote. By 1860, when Forrest was about to enter his 40s and the uh, Civil War was appearing more and more likely by the day, he had accrued a fortune valued at somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million in modern-day money. Uh, that made him one of the richest men in the South, not the entire country. The, the Gilded Age robber barons amassing wealth uh, dwarfing Forrest was, was not too far in the future. In 1860, though, Bedford Forrest, born dirt poor on the Tennessee frontier, was an exceptionally wealthy man. Now, Forrest wasn't all that big in the national politics. He was more interested in local stuff. But in the late 1850s into 1860, it was hard not to at least notice what was going on in Washington. Forrest was unquestionably a committed Democrat. Uh, he had no use for Republicans. But he was also fairly pro-Union in the years prior to the war. One early uh, biographer described him as deeply attached to the federal system and firmly against secession. Forrest uh, was connected to both the Deep South uh, Mississippi and Tennessee, not quite a border state, but closer to the north and, and less vested in the uh, plantation system. Mississippi seceded uh, with the first wave prior to Lincoln's call for volunteers. And at, at that point, Forrest was still leaning toward staying with the Union. Uh, he had a pretty good thing going in Memphis, after all. Not worth risking it fighting uh, for Mississippi if Tennessee remained in the U.S. But then came Fort Sumter and Lincoln's call for 75,000 volunteers. You really can't overemphasize how significant that was. Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee were all slow to pull the trigger on secession. Had it not become uh, apparent that there was going to be fighting, and that Union troops uh, were going to be invading the South, uh, there's a very real possibility that those four states wouldn't have seceded. Tennessee was the last Southern state out, not officially leaving the Union until June 8, 1861, nearly two months after Fort Sumter. By that point, Forrest had decided that he had to defend the South. The 40-year-old millionaire initially enlisted as a private in a Tennessee volunteer cavalry unit uh, a week after Tennessee's secession. Uh, he was joined in volunteering by his, his younger brother Jeffrey and his son William, uh, who is now at the ripe old age of 15. Within no time, Tennesseans, with some pull with the governor and who knew Bedford Forrest, persuaded the governor to, to give him greater responsibility. He was a natural leader, a smart if not educated man, and would be a wasted asset as a private. 
He didn't have a, a significant military experience, but he knew how to make things happen. So Forrest was commissioned as a lieutenant colonel and assigned to recruit and organize a regiment of cavalry volunteers. This was the first area in, in which he excelled, as he used his talent for both organization and leadership to independently establish a new command. Forrest, um, in that effort, took out ads for volunteers, opened a physical office in Memphis, and sent recruiters into Kentucky, along with uh, procurement agents, to surreptitiously purchase weapons and supplies for transfer from the north into Tennessee. Forrest covered the cost of, of all this out of pocket. It didn't take long, and he had more men than he could arm. So he made the, the party uh, BYOG, bring your own gun. The, the men and, and boys who could arm themselves mostly showed up with pistols and shotguns. Not exactly ideal for uh, infantry, but serviceable for cavalry, for now anyway. Uh, Alan Axelrod describes how Forrest who you'll remember didn't have much in the way of training, sought out a, a certain type to serve in his cavalry. Quote, He handpicked his troopers for their agility, horsemanship, daring, and most of all, for their willingness to kill. Unquote. Of those, Forrest appointed the top men for his escort company, a group of around 75 horsemen selected to ride with him. The escort company was expected to be a big, tough, and mean in a fight, like Forrest. He personally worked out a deal in Louisville to purchase several hundred revolvers and some gear for the horses, which Forrest and his men snuck out of Kentucky in potato sacks. Once again, the fortune was coming in handy. He wasn't getting any money from the nascent um, Confederate government, so Forrest needed to bankroll the acquisitions, or the regiment would simply have to do without. The um, Civil War was an absolute financial disaster for an awful lot of Confederates. But in terms of actual personal wealth lost or um, spent due to the war, Forrest has to be way up high on the list. Union loyalists in Kentucky got word of Forrest's operations there, and a militia group prepared to block the escape back into Tennessee near Mumfordsville, Kentucky. In quick thinking, foreshadowing Forrest's resourcefulness during the war, he dressed up the wives, children, parents, and other relatives of the Kentucky recruits and lined them all up with the the men like they were ready to fight their way out. Of course, he was careful to stay far enough away that the the militia uh, couldn't tell that many of the, the soldiers they were facing, were not armed and certainly not planning to fight. But it worked anyway. Believing themselves significantly outnumbered, the militia leaders decided against contesting the crossing. And Forrest, not for the first time, was able to escape across the state line. By October, the cavalry regiment recruited and equipped by Forrest was ready to rock. Their initial assignment was in Kentucky, working along the Ohio River harassing Union transports with nighttime assaults and mobile artillery. The first real action came shortly later in December. Forrest's regiment was pursuing a Union cavalry regiment, double its size, near Sacramento, Kentucky, and upon catching up with them, Forrest plunged in headfirst in the front of a cavalry charge. 
Things got hot in a hurry, and Forrest was forced to pull back and regroup. After taking a breather, he organized something of an envelopment, sending two detachments on flanking movements, while a third center group joined Forrest in assault on the Union middle. The tactic, which is pretty impressive and and cool-headed for a, a commander in his first engagement, succeeded in throwing back the Union cavalry, and Forrest, again leading from the front, followed in hot pursuit. Nasty, close-quarters fighting followed, with Forrest reportedly accounting for nine kills himself before the uh, Yankees eventually surrendered. Now, objectively speaking, Forrest was reckless in that first battle. Strategically, it's really not all that wise for the commander of a unit the size of a regiment to dive into hand-to-hand combat with abandon. Uh, It would be too easy for the enemy to... um, to target and take him out, and leave the regiment disorganized. With that said, Forrest's men responded to um, the remarkable display of physical courage. He left absolutely no doubt as to whether he was willing to engage in the same uh, dangerous actions that he asked of them. And of course, the men didn't forget that. Forrest and his regiment next saw action at Fort Donelson, where they were sent in February to help shore up the defense uh, of the um, important fort on the Cumberland River after the recent capture of nearby Fort Henry by Ulysses Grant. A successful defense of Fort Donelson was critical to continued rebel control of central Tennessee, especially Nashville, with its strategically important manufacturing and invaluable stockpile of country music singer-songwriters. Upon reporting to the fort on the February 11th, Forrest was assigned the tough job of utilizing the fort's available cavalry to obstruct the advance forces sent out by Grant to clear the approach to the fort. Once again, Forrest impressed the men under his command with his willingness to get his hands dirty. Relying on well-honed backwoods marksmanship, uh, Forrest and his team shot it out with Union snipers and Forrest once again notched up a few kills. The rebel defenders were were fairly successful in opposing the initial Union efforts at the fort. Grant sent up a flotilla of gunboats to try to to tilt the board, which led Forrest to utter a memorable line to a nearby clergyman, quote, Parson, for God's sake, pray. Nothing but God Almighty can save that fort, end quote. If you're polling for the title of most quotable Civil War commander, uh, I think our two most recent subjects, uh, Sherman and Forrest, uh, they both have to be in the running. But the Union gunboats were uh, much less effective at Donelson than they had been at Fort Henry. In fact, the freshwater flotilla under Andrew Foote took a pounding from the Confederate guns defending the fort. Even so... By the evening of February 14th, Valentine's Day, the Confederates were completely surrounded and severely outnumbered. And so, the rebel leaders decided to attempt an escape. The Confederate forces uh, organized for a breakout attempt for the morning of the 15th, and Forrest's command was again in on the fiercest fighting. Up front on the rebel left, Forrest's cavalry accomplished the difficult task of hitting the Union flank, 
taking out a stubborn Union battery and clearing a workable pathway for the rebel soldiers to get out of Dodge. He lost three horses in the process, but they got the job done. Matter-of-factly reporting afterwards that um, in silencing the battery, Forrest's team had, had killed nearly all of the blue-coat artillerymen, uh, along with the horses pulling the guns. It was a morning of, of fierce fighting, but it seemed to have been successful. In Forrest's view, the rebels had, had opened up a clear path of escape. But then Forrest received what, in his eyes, was an inexplicable order— He was to pull back from the position he and his men had just fought like hell to take and regroup at the fort. Now, he didn't like it, but he did it. Um, After first scrounging anything useful left lying around by dead or retreated Yankees. Waste not, want not. That night, at a council of war, the rebel commanders, John Floyd, Gideon Pillow, and Simon Boulevard Buckner, started talking about surrender. You might recall that Buckner was an old friend and West Point classmate of the Union commander leading the attack on Fort Donelson. After voluntarily giving back the ground that they had taken during the morning's breakout, and with additional Union reinforcements having arrived, Fort Donelson was in a real pinch. Lou Wallace, a Union officer under Grant's command during the attack on Donelson, and who went on to write Ben-Hur, offered this description of the three rebel leaders at Fort Donelson. Quote, John B. Floyd, Gideon J. Pillow, and Simon B. Buckner. Of these, the first was ranking officer, and he was at the time under indictment by a grand jury at Washington for malversation as Secretary of War and for complicity in an embezzlement of public funds. Now, that had to do with Floyd's having taken measures to uh, ensure certain property of the federal government ended up in, in southern hands while uh, Floyd remained James Buchanan's Secretary of War. Returning to Lou Walls. The second officer, and this is Gideon Pillow, had a genuine military record, but it is said of him that he was of a jealous nature, insubordinate and quarrelsome. There is little doubt that the junior of the three commanders, referring to Buckner, was the fittest. He was their equal in courage, while in devotion to the cause and to his profession of arms, in tactical knowledge, in military bearing, in the faculty of getting the most service out of his inferiors, and inspiring them with confidence in his ability, as a soldier in all the highest meanings of the word, he was greatly their superior. End quote. So Lou Wallace wasn't particularly impressed with Pillow and Floyd, uh, who both had, had more of the politician than the general, and, and neither was Forrest, especially when Floyd and Pillow uh, boldly decided to flee the fort themselves and leave Buckner in charge to manage the surrender, a surrender that U.S. Grant would famously ensure was unconditional. Now, Forrest was dumbfounded by this decision. What had been the point of the breakout? If the fort was going to have to be lost, at least they could preserve the men defending it. He reported seeing the escape route only a few hours ago, and it was still clear. And the men were tired from a hard day of fighting, but they still had more left to give. Why in the world would you just give up 
when escaping or continuing the fight were both remained viable options. But it was no good. The decision had been made, and surrender it was. Forrest couldn't talk them out of it, but he didn't intend to participate. Uh, as he subsequently recalled, quote, I then stated that I had not come out for the purpose of surrendering my command and would not do it if they would follow me out, that I intended to go out if I saved just one man, end quote. Uh, another memorable uh, quote from Forrest, uh, this one to the men under his command, as he convinced them to join him in escaping prior to commencement of the, the surrender negotiations, quote, Boys, these people are talking about surrendering, and I am going out of this place before they do, or bust hell wide open, end quote. Now, it wasn't a hard sell. For the 4 a.m. jailbreak, Forrest was joined by more than 500 men, including most of the men under his command and a few more who were eager to join them. The only resistance they met on the way out came from the uh, flooded Cumberland River. The crossing was a little nerve-wracking, but they made it nonetheless. And, clear of the river, Forrest and his fellow escapees marched unobstructed all the way to the rendezvous point in Nashville. Afterward, Forrest reported that the runaways had not been confronted by a single Yankee soldier. Meanwhile, Buckner, uh, now in command after um, Floyd and Pillow bravely ran away like uh, Sir Robin and left Buckner in charge, uh, Buckner surrendered the fort to Grant's Yankees. Uh, along with the 12,000 rebel soldiers left defending it. In his report, Forrest left no doubt as to his disagreement with the course that the officers had decided upon. Quote, I am clearly of the opinion that two-thirds of our army could have marched out without loss, and that had we continued the fight the next day, we should have gained a glorious victory. End quote. Now, maybe he was right about the escape, maybe not. But probably a, a bit optimistic about the prospects of uh, defeating Grant in the field the next day. But you can't win as an underdog if you're not willing to take a few risks. Forrest was definitely a risk-taker when he saw odds that he liked. But um, as an accomplished poker player, he also knew the value of folding when you had a bad hand. And that's just uh, what he found upon arriving in Nashville. The citizens of Nashville had already heard about the surrender of Fort Donelson and had concluded that their city would fall into Union hands next. Those who could were getting out of town. Others, or maybe some of the same ones, raided Confederate warehouses in Nashville. Forrest arrived on February 18th. John Floyd, the hero of Fort Donelson, was now on the scene in Nashville, managing Confederate logistics. Floyd recognized that the panic spreading throughout the town uh, had it on the brink of chaos. So he did what, what real leaders do in situations like this. He pawned the job off on Forrest and once again left town. Forrest, on the other hand, kept a cool head. After getting the mob under control... He secured the, the most important equipment in town, most notably uh, equipment for manufacturing rifles. Then he ordered his men to commandeer whatever wagons were available to keep as much of the supplies and munitions stored in Nashville uh, in Confederate hands 
as was reasonably feasible. That ended up including a considerable haul of of ammunition and huge stores of bacon, uh, tens of thousands of pounds of bacon. Now, once that stuff was safely ushered out of town, much of it uh, on a train bound for Chattanooga, Forrest directed the evacuation of Nashville. The, The city couldn't be defended, so Forrest didn't try. And Union forces arrived shortly after rebel forces had uh, escaped to Huntsville, making Nashville the first Confederate capital to fall into Union hands when Don Carlos Buell arrived on February 23rd. Now, the loss of Nashville was more than just a symbolic loss, though it was certainly that too. Nashville was a major center of manufacturing and shipping with ironworks, uh, arms manufacturing, uh, some of which Forrest had, had saved, and it also served as a focal point for much-needed agricultural production in central Tennessee. So the loss of Nashville compromised the uh, Confederate presence in that area uh, of Tennessee and in Kentucky, and shortly after, Leonidas Polk was, was forced to evacuate um, the fort that he was occupying in Columbus, Kentucky. During the Nashville evacuation, Forrest's cavalry served as a rear guard, protecting against potential Union pursuit that, uh, that didn't really occur. Uh, much of the Confederate Western forces were, were pulling back to Corinth in northeastern Mississippi to regroup and to consolidate. Like Nashville, Corinth held considerable strategic importance. The city sat at the, the junction of, of two major southern railroads— the Memphis and Charleston, which stretched most of the way across the Confederacy, east to west, and the Mobile and Ohio, which connected the western states running uh, north to south. Corinth was an obvious Union target because of the railroads and its key strategic position, but in early 1862 it still remained in rebel hands, acting as a a vital hub in the uh, Confederate Army's logistics system. General Ulysses Grant, though, aimed to change that. Following up on his his recent string of victories, Grant was bringing his army south, with his eyes set on Corinth. Of course, the the Confederates had every intention of of defending Corinth. General Albert Sidney Johnston, the overall commander of Confederate forces out west, and one of the highest-ranking Confederate officers, was in town organizing the defenses personally. He was joined by P.G.T. Beauregard, another high-ranking general and something of a Confederate hero following Fort Sumter. But rather than dig in and risk a possible siege, Johnston and Beauregard decided to take the fight to Grant. See if the um, future president could take it as well as he dished it out. What followed would be, when it was fought, but not for long after, the bloodiest battle in American history. Shiloh would be a turning point in the war, making clear just how violent the conflict would be. Shiloh, and specifically its aftermath, would also contribute a great deal to the reputation of Nathan Bedford Forrest. But not so much because of his his involvement in the battle itself. Forrest's role in in the fighting was somewhat limited. In the rearguard fighting that followed, though, Forrest's exploits would start to earn him the the begrudging respect of even Union soldiers, and he'd start to catch the attention of Grant 
and William Tecumseh Sherman, who would, soon after, make neutralizing forest a high priority of Union operations out west. We'll pick up with Shiloh next time in part two of our series on Nathan Bedford Forest. Part two should be out before too long, as most of it was originally going to be in this episode, uh, but it got too long, so we had to split it up. Either way, we hope that you'll join us soon to continue our look at the Wizard of the Saddle and start to get a clearer picture of just how he earned that nickname. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. credit card bill.